Thank you for the riches of your grace. There's no God like you. There's no God beside you. Generous and rich in all of your ways, lavish in your kindness, pouring out, heaping out upon us, upon us, abundant blessing and mercy. We give you praise. And we give you praise, Father, that you're a speaking God, that you've spoken to us in your word, and you have left your word in print and preserved it until our generation, and indeed until all of it is fulfilled, not one jot or tittle shall pass away. And we pray that as we come to your word this morning, we come hungry, we come ready to feed, we come, O oh Lord, with open ears and open hearts, and you would do your work in our lives. Lord, we say, have your way this morning. Speak to us in power. Fall upon us in your spirit. Sanctify the save and save the lost. Show us your glory. Let us behold your character. And let us by some measure become what we behold. Oh Lord, draw us to yourself, we pray. By drawing us into your word and speaking while your servants listen. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm like most male drivers. I don't stop for directions. Ever. I mean, it's in the man's handbook, right? This is part of what it means to be a man, is you never stop for directions, right? Most men think getting from A to B is a matter of confidence, right? If we believe in ourselves hard enough, then we can get anywhere. It's navigation by confidence, you see. And the worst thing that can happen to a male driver is that they figure out where they are, right? They, they, they're driving around and they're kind of off route and they don't want to stop and get directions because then that'll put them like 83 seconds behind schedule, right? They don't want to stop and get directions and and they're just trying to figure it out. I, I know it's around here somewhere. I've been down this way. Or, or just, you know, I have a sense that this is the road. And, and the worst thing can happen is, is they figure out where they're going because that just gives them more confidence the next time that they're misdirected, right? The only thing that can undermine a man's confidence in driving is a woman in the car. I mean, you can fill a car with men and none of them quite know where they're going, but what do they do? They figure it out together, right? They all get confident, oh man, it's this way. No, dog, you should have took that right. And, and sooner or later, they get somewhere, and it's like, oh, see, we all figured it out. And the car just grows in confidence, right? Put a, put a woman in the car, what happens? You know where you're going. <laughs> I think we lost. I didn't sink that house before. You know. Pull over and ask for directions. And this is when it really undermines your confidence because they say pull over and ask directions for some guy who clearly, he don't know where he at either, right? He's just <laughs> stop and ask anybody. He, ask him. Ask him. I said, baby, I, you know, I, I, no, 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 no harm intended, but I think he's homeless, you know. <laughs> ask him anyway. And you, and you pull over and you know it's a man. So what happens? He's going to get confident, isn't he? Uh, I, I ain't really from around here, but if, if you go down that way, I believe you get to the highway. <laughs> That's what men do, right? We're confident, even when we're lost. But just to, just to be clear, just set the record straight, I've never been lost. <laughs> the reason why you know that is I'm, I'm here right now. If I'd ever been lost, I wouldn't be here, right? I figured it out. <laughs> I got back. I don't know why men think turning around or asking for direction is such a bad thing. But this I do know. If we try to live our spiritual lives by going our own way, by trying to figure it out, by never turning around, well, then we really are truly lost. We will never find our way home to heaven like that. One essential thing about the spiritual life is that it requires turning around. The Bible's word for that is repentance. In order to find God, you actually have to look behind yourself. You have to actually forsake the path that you've been on in order to turn to see the path you've been missing. Repentance is how God finds sinners and brings them home with joy. That's what we see in this text, Luke chapter 15. If you have your Bibles with you, turn with me there. 
as we continue our study of Luke's gospel, uh, a series that we've called Getting to Know Jesus. And that's been the burden of the series right there in the title. We want to, to get to know Jesus. We want to see his character, see the way he thinks and the way he acts. And in discovering more about who Jesus is, we want to be drawn nearer to him. And as this text, the Lord appears to us as a shepherd who seeks his lost sheep. And the way he seeks them is through repentance. If you're taking notes this morning, I, I want to give us six reasons to confess our sin and repent. Six reasons to turn around spiritually. And I want to give us one reason not to continue without repenting. Six reasons to turn around, one reason not to continue. Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the paws that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field. As he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed a fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, 
who has devoured your property with prostitutes? You killed a fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The Lord blessed the reading of his word. Uh, the context for our chapter is in verses 1 and 2. Look back there with me. See what's happening in verse 1? We're told that the tax collectors and sinners are all drawing near to hear Jesus. What an amazing sentence that is. Isaiah the prophet tells us that when Christ came, we considered him stricken and afflicted. We didn't consider him beautiful. There was nothing in him that we assign esteem to. But here, contrary to that, is this marvelous thing that tax collectors who were kind of the social outcast, I mean, they, they're treated pretty much like the way the IRS is treated today. They, they just, you know, given a bad name and reviled among many, they're coming to Jesus. And sinners, just a term here used for all those people who were not religious, who did not worship God, who went their own way in their sin, they too are coming to Jesus and they're pressing near to hear him. A revival is happening. But notice the Pharisees. Verse 2. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now sometimes how you read a sentence and the meaning you get all depends on the tone that you put into it. Those words right there. This man receives sinners and eats with them. <laughs> They could be read with wonder. A holy God receives sinners and eat with sinners. There, there should be a sense of awe in that. This man right here, who is God in the flesh, has come into the world, and what does he do? He receives outcasts. He receives sinners. He receives tax collectors, and, and not just to hear him preach, he eats with them. This is what Jesus is like. He's near to the broken and the contrite. He, he draws up close to and allows others to come up close to him in his humility and his kindness. You can say that sentence with wonder. This man receives sinners and eats with them, but the text says in verse 2 that the Pharisees say it with grumbling. This rascal. Look at him. What kind of rabbi is he? eating with sinners and tax collectors and letting them touch him. No holy man would do that. That's, that's what's in their heart, right? And so a sentence that should commend Jesus in their mouths condemned Jesus. Begs the question, what do we see when we look at Jesus? Do we regard him with grumbling? or with wonder? Do we think him hard? Or do we think him tender? Let us not be like Pharisees who care more about their religious rules than they care about the people who need a savior. Who care about their own way of worshiping God than they care about the God who's right there in front of them. What should give them all prompts their grumbling. And that's the context for the stories, the three stories that Jesus tells in verses, verse 3 down to the end of the chapter. Three parables. The first about a man who loses a sheep and finds it. The second about a woman who loses a coin and finds it. The third about a father whose prodigal son goes off but returns. And all three of those parables really teach the same thing. Jesus, in so many ways, is, is emphasizing a point, driving home a point in these three stories. You can see the, the punchline of the parables in verse 7 and verse 10 uh, and down around the end of the chapter. A parable is a, is a story, kind of a symbolic story, with one major point, right? One punchline. And look with me at verse 7. What does the Lord say? Just so I tell you, there would be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 10, 
Just so I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And look down in verse 31, 32. Verse 32. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. See it again in verse 24, the same idea there. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. What is Jesus underlining for us here? Key word is repentance. It means to turn around. It means you were going in one direction and now you make a 180 degree to t- turn and you go in the other direction. And the key idea here is that repentance makes God happy. Our turning back to God gives God And every holy being in heaven, joy. So what I want to do in the time that we have is give us five or six reasons then to repent, encouragements to repent, and and one reason why you don't want to continue on a path of, of sin and unrepentance. You ready? Number one, five reasons to confess our sin and repent. Number one, because you have great worth in God's sight. Because you, beloved, Each and every one of us, even while wandering in our sin, is of great value or worth in God's sight. That's what we see in the first parable, verses 3 to 7. You remember remember the story there? There's a man who has lost a sheep. He has a hundred, verse 4, but he's lost one of them. Now, Jesus asked a question, what would you do? And and the implied answer is, wouldn't you leave the 99 in an open field and go find the one? Then he goes on to say this. The man finds the sheep, puts the sheep on his shoulder, carries the sheep home as a shepherd would, a, a wounded sheep. And when he gets home, he doesn't stop with just putting the sheep back in the fold with the other 99. What does he do? He calls his friends, doesn't he? He calls his boys. He said, you know, man, sheep I told you about that I lost, I found him. I brought him back home. He's safe. He's in the fold. Come party with me. Come celebrate with me. And all his friends come, and they celebrate the finding of one sheep. Now, here's the question. Why would you go on so about one sheep when you had 99 others? It's because that individual one was itself of tremendous value to you. In fact, verse 7 says this. As Jesus unpacks the meaning of this parable, it says, listen, I'll tell you the truth. The repentance of one sinner, that's what that one sheep was that wandered off on its own way. The repentance of one sinner, it brings more happiness to heaven than the righteousness of 99. Now keep in mind who he's talking to in verses 1 and 2, you remember the tax collectors and the sinners and the Pharisees, the self-righteous Pharisees, that's the 99. The tax collectors and the sinners, that's the one lost sheep. Jesus is saying, listen, it is of more joy to heaven that one sinner turn back to God than that 99 self-righteous people keep deluding themselves before God. Why should we repent? Well, it's in repentance that we discover what value God has placed upon our lives. It's in the sacrifice of his seeking us that we see something of what value God has attached to our lives. The man in the story is a picture of God who leaves 99 to go get one. And that's what he does in our lives. He seeks us not wholesale, but individual, retail. He comes and he selects us and he calls us to himself as a demonstration of his love for us and his sacrifice for us and, and of our worth to him in his sight. Can I put it this way? The worst thing in the world is not to be a sinner. The worst thing in the world is to be a sinner and think God doesn't value you. 
It's the cross that demonstrates the value God assigns to each and every sinner. It's in his son and in his cross that God is coming to seek us, the, the one among the 100 that wandered off and that were lost. And it's in his cross and the death of his son that he says to all the world, this is the value I attach to your soul. Nothing more rare, nothing more precious, nothing more valuable than the very blood of the Son of God can describe what worth God attaches to sinners who wander off. If you turn to God, you will discover that He's not out to crush you. He's out to save you and to rejoice over you and to declare the infinite value of your individual soul. In other words, if you want your life to be worth something, turn around and look to God. Repent of sin and seek the Savior. But now there's a second reason to repent. We see it in the second parable that's told there, and I've already alluded to this. Repent, because repentance brings joy to God. We see that idea of joy just running all the way through this passage. I mentioned it there in verse 6. The man finds his sheep and he comes home and he calls his boys, his neighbors, and they celebrate. We see it here in this story about the woman who loses the coin. Uh, She's got ten coins. She loses one. But what does she do? You see how diligently she searches. She sweeps the home and she places it in order and she looks for that coin. And how appropriate on Mother's Day that that God should be pictured as a woman caring for her home and stewarding her resources. And so she searches for that coin. And and when she finds that coin, what does she do in verse 9? She she calls her girlfriends and neighbors and says, come rejoice with me for I found that coin I lost. It's a particular female way of thinking there. I lost the coin, I found it, now let me spend it on something. <laughs> and so, he- I'll, I'll pay for that later. <laughs> so, so heaven rejoices at the finding of that one coin. And, and we maybe know something of this in our experience, don't we? I mean, how many of us have maybe had a wallet or, or a pocketbook, and, and we know we had $100 in there. We know what denominations were in there. We had three 20s and, and, and three 10s and two 5s, and, and we look in our pocketbook, and we're looking for that 5, and we can't find that 5. And when you dump the pocketbook out, man, you start straightening up the house, don't you? You start interrogating all the family members. Boy, you got my $5, you know. You start going in on folks, don't you? And you don't rest. Now, you got $95 in your pocket, but you can't rest till you find that five, can you? Well, why? Because we experience a kind of loss, don't we? We know we had it. It was ours. It was in our possession. It was in our keeping. And, And there was a kind of affection attached to that. How much more so with God, with the people he created in his image? whom he owned, who were in his possession, and on whom he had set his affection. But now one is missing. One is lost to him. You see how diligently this woman who pictures forth God is in search for this coin. And we see in the gospel how diligently God has sought after sinners. Once again, he has sent his son into the world to to bear our likeness and image, to wear our flesh, and to search this earth as it were for the coins, for the people that he lost. And he's left his church in the world. A reason why the church exists in the world is not just so that you and I can have a good time on the Lord's Day, but so that we can scatter Monday through Saturday looking for lost souls like a woman looking for a lost coin and telling them of the love of God our Savior. And so that we can share in his rejoicing. When the sheep and the coins are found, who do you think the neighbors are who are being called together to celebrate? Well, it's us, isn't it? It's the church. It's those of us who know what it is to have been lost and now found, who know what it is to have been discovered by the Savior who sought after us and risked for us and made us his own again. And then we hear the news of another that's found. And we rejoice. We gather and we praise God. We celebrate his name in part because verse 10, the very angels in heaven rejoice over the repentance of even one sinner 
There's something Jewish, I think, about verse 10. Verse 10, a, a faithful Jewish person wouldn't, would not refer casually or unthinkingly to God himself. And so oftentimes you have references to the throne or you have references to the angels. And, and that's a way of, 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 with some modesty and reverence, referring to God himself. The very angels in the presence of God rejoice over the repentance of even one sinner. And those angels are simply reflecting the very heart of God himself who rejoices at the repentance of even one sinner. So let me say this to you. I love that hymn we just sang, Pass Me Not, O Gentle Savior. And there's a humility in it. I love the humility in it which says, While on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. Verse 10 says, If only you come to get me, (laughs) do not pass me by. In other words, there's a kind of false humility that interrupts genuine repentance. And that, that false humility says, I'm not worthy. That false humility says, yeah, it's fine for others to repent of their sin and be saved, but, but you don't know my sin. You don't know my life. You don't know how bad it is. And, and maybe God has some leftover grace that I might be able to get some crumbs at the table. And, and that's okay to be humble. But beloved, I want you to see that verse 10 says, if only you repent all of heaven rejoices. If nobody else receives the free offer of salvation today, if nobody else receives the promise of the forgiveness of their sins and eternal life through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, do not let the Savior pass you by. Do not lose lose sight of the fact that all of heaven's angels and God himself will rejoice if only you repent. Or to put it another way, If Christ had died only for you, God would have considered it worth it. Heaven would rejoice forever at the repentance of a single sinner. Maybe that's you this morning. Forget about everybody else. What they see, what they think, what they say. And this morning, recognize that God would be glad, happy, joyful if you would turn around and come to him. You're his lost coin. He's sweeping even now to clear away the debris and to find you. Do not let him pass you by. Turn to him. Call upon his name. Make heaven happy. Repent and believe. Let me show you a third reason why everyone should repent. And whether it's repenting for the first time to come to Christ and to receive eternal life, or whether it is repenting again as a Christian to constantly be turning to God, here's, a, here's another reason to repent. We want to repent because our sin destroys our life. Sin is a destroyer. Satan is a devourer. And they look to destroy and devour our lives. That's what we see in verses 11 to 16. Look there with me as I read that again. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. The young man starts with everything as a member of his father's home, but he's ungrateful and impatient. Now what the Lord Jesus is doing in this third story, which makes the same point, is he's slowing down the film. Those first two parables are short, and those first two parables are focused really um, symbolically on God, what God does to seek us and to, and to grant us repentance. 
But this third parable now kind of comes down and gives us the ground level view and it slows it down and it kind of shows us what's going on in our own lives when we wander away from God and what's going on in our lives when we turn to sort of pursue him in repentance. Notice what's happening in the first part of this longer story. This young man's in his father's home and he has everything that his father has. He enjoys everything that his father enjoys and, and gives to him. But, but that's not enough. He's ungrateful and impatient and, and really quite insulting. Now, when he asks for his inheritance before his father dies, he effectively treats his father as though he were dead. Notice what happens. He makes himself fatherless in verse 12. Because he wants to gratify his sinful desires, he makes himself homeless In verse 13, going out to a far country, without self-control or delayed gratification, he ends up penniless, broke, in verse 14. And in the end, he is friendless and foodless. In verses 15 and 16, he's wallowing in the pen of pigs. This is a Jewish man, we presume, and in Judaism, much like in Islam, pork is unclean. We meant to understand that this man is at the very bottom of life. Here's the thing, beloved, a sinful life is a riches to rags story. Not rags to riches. His life slides deeper into squalor and loneliness. And we're meant to understand that if we live for ourselves, we'll soon live by ourselves. He doesn't have a friend in the world, verse 16, to help him. And this is what living apart from Christ looks like. This is what it looks like from the vantage point of heaven. God the Father watches his rich but rebellious children squander his love and take advantage of his grace and waste his riches as they run away from home to the far off country of sin. And isn't it true that that sinners want all the goodness of God's creation and all the enjoyment of God's blessings, but they do not want God himself? They do not understand his fatherhood. They refuse to return his love like this son. Unless God restrains the sinner, they squander their lives and waste their lives as they chase every desire of the flesh. You see, life, quote-unquote, apart from God, is really a slow death. Apart from God, we are living to die. But in repentance, we are dying to live. It is dying to self that allows us to find life in the Lord Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we are wasting life in sin. We should repent because sin destroys our lives. I'll give you a fourth reason now. We should repent because our sin is a kind of insanity. It's a kind of insanity. Where you get that from, Pastor T? Look with me in verses 17 to 20. But when he came to himself, isn't that an interesting phrase? He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father to do precisely that. Notice what happens to this man in verses 17 to 20. Number one, first comes a recognition. He recognizes that he's kind of lost his mind, hasn't he? So I'm out here in this pig pen. I'm wrestling pigs for huss. <laughs> you know, people passing me by and nobody helping me. And I, I had all this stuff in my father's house. Why am I in this pig pen? He, he comes to his senses, the Bible says. And, and that's what has to happen in repentance. We, we have to come to our senses. We have to recognize that we're in the pig pen of sin and we're living in a way that just destroys our lives and there's no reason for us to. Because we have a father in heaven in whose house the servants eat better than the slaves of sin. This man said, wait a minute. I'm out here living like this. And the hired help 
in my father's house have all their needs met. A man can't repent until he's helped to see the insanity of sin. Until he's helped to see that living apart from God who made you and living contrary to to the rules he's made us to live by is a kind of insanity. We understand this in our natural families, don't we? That's why I love the setting of this story. You know, we, we have children who, when they come into the world, they're just, so, they're just so wonderful and innocent, and, you know, they don't do anything wrong. They're just cool, and you, you talk to them. You, in fact, you forget how to talk, so you start saying, blah, blah, goo, goo, and stuff like that, and just connecting with your child, and you begin to see them grow, and, and you, you just, you're just amazed at how they're growing before your eyes every, every day. And pretty soon, you're telling, telling people that they're able to hold their heads up now, and you know, they look around, and you're just, you're just amazed. And, and pretty soon, they're able to kind of lift up and crawl, and, and then they're toddling and cruising, and, and you can't wait for them to take their first steps. And they take their first steps, and you think you need a Nobel Prize for parenting, you know, and, and you're just excited, right? And then they start talking, and you cannot believe it. It's, you're a mother. You take them to the playground every day. You wipe their boo-boos. And, and, and every time you, you're with them, and you say, say, mama, mama. And, and they, they say, dada, dada, you know. But you keep trying, right? They, they just keep calling dada. And, and then they begin to really learn how to speak. And at some point, they say stuff like, no. Stop. Mine. Ah, you know. <laughs> they just rebel against you, don't you? you know? And, you know, for a little while, it's, it's cute. You bear with it. You correct them. No, give that to mommy. Here, take this. You know, that's good parenting, right? Take something away they shouldn't have. Give them something they can enjoy. You know, here, take this. Give this to mommy. And, you know, and, and a little, little while later, you, you want to help them to know they can't put, okay, lick your hand and put it in the socket. You know, you, you maybe tap their hand. You correct them. But at a certain point, it ain't cute no more. And they get sassy or something, right? And what do you think as a parent? Have you lost your mind? <laughs> How much more so God looking at us, running away in our sin? He's like, I raised you. I gave you life. And you're running after things that are not God's, and things that destroy your life. And from the vantage point of heaven, all of heaven, like, have you lost your mind? You are out your ever-loving mind. And we won't turn to God until we see it the way God sees it. Until we're like this man and we have this recognition. I need to come to my senses and turn to God. And that's how repentance begins. But notice the second thing. The second thing, there's first a recognition, but secondly, there's a resolution. You see that there in verses 18 and 19. Of Luke 15, the text says, the man says, I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. You know, he didn't just sit there and say, man, I'm in this sin. I done lost my mind. I done lost everything. I'm in this pig pen. He actually responds to that. He comes to his senses and he makes a a resolution. He says, no, I'm going back to my father. I'm going to to make my case before him. I don't really have a case, but in humility, I'm going to say, would you receive me back? Not as a son, but maybe as one of your servants. You see, repentance really is humility that turns back to God. And this man not only sort of recognizes his state, but he resolves, I'm going to go back to my father. I love the way one commentator says, he was aware of a holy God and a broken law. And then Terry Johnson writes this, he confesses without conditions and without qualifications. He makes no excuses. He offers no explanations. He had sinned, period. And the problem with most confessions is that they primarily express regret for the consequences of sin rather than regret for sin itself. And that's the difference between worldly sorrow and godly repentance. Worldly sorrow is, man, I'm, I'm so sad I got caught. That didn't go the way I planned. 
Y'all don't understand me. But godly sorrow. Notice how the man puts it here. I've sinned against God and before my human father. It sees that the treason of sin is really against the king of heaven. And it confesses it, period. And it acknowledges that because of my sin, I am not worthy. I have no demands that I can make upon your life. And so true repentance includes recognition, a resolution, and number three, a resignation. Verse 19. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And then he resigns himself to this. Treat me as one of your higher servants. He sees himself and his sins in light of God's goodness and grace. Grace. He, he knows his depravity. So he resigns any thoughts of sonship. He'd settle to be a servant. He can't claim to be a son who lives in such sin. He can only hope to serve. Charles Spurgeon, that great preacher from a generation ago in England, said this, the prodigal, when he said, I will arise and go to my father, became in a measure reformed from that very moment. How, say you? Why, he had left the swine trough. More, he left the wine cup and he left the harlots. He did not go with the harlot on his arm and the wine cup in his hand and say, I will take these with me and go to my father. It could not be. These were all left. And though he had not goodness to bring, yet he did not try to keep his sins and come to Christ. That's repentance. Do not try to keep your sins and come to Christ. Leave your sins where they were. Come empty-handed with no demands and say to God, here am I, Lord. Do with me as you will. This man had a recognition, a resolution, and a resignation. He put himself in the hands of God. And beloved, can I tell you, if you put yourself in the hands of God, you will be in no better hands than that. He will not forsake you. Remember the first two parables. He's been seeking you. And these two parables gives us a view of repentance from the top and the bottom. So the first two parables really are telling us that what's really happening in our repentance is God has been hounding us. He's been seeking us. He's been sweeping the house and searching the fields to find us. But at the human level, what happens in our recognition is we turn around and we see him. He's been gaining on us. He's been catching up to us. He's been sending famine into our lives so we can't trust our riches. He's, a, he's allowed us to expend all of our riches so that we end up in the pig trough. And he's sat us down in that squalor so that we might look up and look back and see him who had been coming for us the whole time. And beloved, if you would repent, if you would turn from sin and look toward God, you'd see a father who loves you and we'll receive you. That's the fifth thing I want to say about repentance. We should repent because God will still be a loving father to us. You see that there in verses 22 and 23? Man came to him and said, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I imagine his head is hung low. He might even have fallen to his knees at this point. Surely he can't bear to bring himself to look his father in the eye as if he'd done no wrong. But, verse 22, the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. I put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. I bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And here we begin to see the excellencies of the Father shining forth, don't we? He recognized this man's sin before this man had. He saw the destruction in his son's life before his son had seen it. The text says he had looked up and seen the man from afar off coming. And he ran out to meet the man, to greet the man, something that would not have been respectable among older men in his country. But he forgets what's respectable. He picks up the robes, the hem of his robes, and he gathers them, this old man, and he finds speed, the speed of a, of a track star. 
And he runs out and he meets his son and, and maybe he puts his hand under his chin and he lifts his face to meet his or, or maybe he grabs him by the shoulder and he lifts him off his knees and he looks at him and, and the man makes this confession, I'm not worthy to be your son, let me be a servant. He's like, I ain't paying no attention to that. And he turns to the servant and says, bring the best robe. And bring the signet ring, the ring that has the symbol on it, that he belongs to this house. And I've been fattening up a calf for a long time. The big one out there, out back. Bring that one. Slaughter him. Get the barbecue started. Let's celebrate. For this, my son who was a dead is alive again. Who was lost is now found. And in those words, we discover that repentance is a kind of rebirth. We had been dead to God in our sins. But a resurrection has happened. A new spiritual life has come in that recognition of our sin and that resolution to go and to go back to our Father and that resignation to His grace. We discover in all of that that God has made us alive again. He's raised us from death. We had been lost, but now He has claimed us again. And He has dressed us in the righteous robes of Christ, spotless and white. He has placed upon our hands the, the, the ring that bears the family crest of heaven. And he has prepared for us a, a banquet in his kingdom. With him we will sup and we will celebrate. Oh, beloved, you feel the darkness and destruction of your sin. I pray that you would let break through the light and the warmth of the Father's love. He will be glad to see you. He will receive you to himself. And he will treat you better than a servant. He will make you a son or a daughter in his kingdom. Let me put it this way. There's never any downside to repenting, ever. Do we, do we not sometimes feel like if I confess this sin, if I let others know, if I admit my wrong, it's going to cost me? Aren't we prone to sort of pull back in, in fear from confession and repentance because we think there's going to be a bruise, there's going to be a pain, there's going to be a, there's going to be a loss, but these texts scream out to us, don't think that way. You, you may bear some cost. You may suffer some consequence because of your sin. This man had to be in a pig's trough. But beloved, the reward of coming back to God is far and away greater than anything that you will lose in confessing your sin and turning to him. There were no more fattened calves in the pig pen. And famine had come to dry up any resources. That man was without but with his father, there was everything. Oh, beloved, if you repent, God will be your father. And not like the human fathers that we have had, who have sometimes failed us and been imperfect, he will be the perfect father who will never fail us, never forsake us, will not punish us for his own convenience, he will dress us and clothe us and love us for joy. Not because he has to, but because he's glad to. There's no father like this father. And even the best of human fathers are small reflections of this heavenly father. Fear not what you lose in your repentance. Do not try to come to God with the cup of wine in your hand and the, the paramour on your arm. Come to God empty-handed, but come to God ready to be loved. Those are reasons to repent. Let me give you one final reason to change course. And it is to simply say that we don't want to continue in, unrepent, in unrepentance because it is that stubborn pride that keeps us from the joy of heaven itself. And to see that, we have to look at the second son in this story, who is really a picture of the Pharisees, those Pharisees in verse 2 who were grumbling about sinners coming to Jesus. 
Notice his second son, beginning in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. Now usually when you hear music and dancing, you get happy, don't you? Well, he does what some people do in verse 26. He calls one of the servants and asks, what, is, what do these things mean? What's happening down there? And the servant explains to him, your brother has come. I imagine he's excited. He probably has the, the father's excitement. Your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. In other words, we got a reason to party. Notice in verse 28, he was angry and refused to go in. And in that refusal, he is dishonoring his father every bit as much as the son who left with his inheritance. He will not share in his father's happiness. He will not rejoice at his brother's return. The things that makes his father glad, he now is bitter about. And so he refuses to, to go in. Now here's the second indignity that his father suffers. His father came out and entreated him. Notice how the father seeks everybody's repentance. Comes out and he entreats him, which means he, he speaks gently and, and, and in a way begs him, come in, celebrate with us. But this man is vexed. He's in his feelings. Notice what he says. He answered his father, verse 29, look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. You see, he feels righteous, doesn't he? He feels justified before his father. He thinks his years of service has earned his father's favor, doesn't he? He doesn't understand the gospel. He says, I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, not when my brother returned, this son of yours came, and there's so much, there's so much disdain in that. There's so much insult in that. When this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, notice that the Pharisee is more skilled in confessing other people's sins than their own. When we do that, we might ask if that's the Pharisee in us speaking, right? This son of yours who's devoured your inheritance and spent it on prostitutes. You killed a fattened calf for him. How could you eat with sinners? Isn't this what they say in verse 2? How could you do this? This one who's gone off in the far country and lived so riotously, now he comes back broken, begging, and you treat him like he was me. The one who always obeyed you and did your commands. I'm the good son, he's saying. And you never gave me a small little calf to kill with my friends. You see, it's that pride and that entitlement and that self-righteousness that keeps a person from repenting. If you think you have something to boast before God, you will never truly see your need for God. If we think we have something to present to God to establish our case, we will never turn away from ourselves to trust Christ, who is the perfect righteousness. And that's what's happening here. This man is living by the law. He thinks if I do what God says, if I do what my father says, my father owes me. He thinks salvation is a matter of being owed by God. He hadn't understood that there's enough sin, even in his righteous acts, to condemn him before God. And there's enough sin right here, even in the presentation of his case, the self-righteousness and the pride to condemn him before his father. His father would be right to rebuke him for such an attitude as this. All that boasting about what he has done in the past, he didn't obey the command to come in and party. He didn't obey the command, the command to come in and rejoice. And beloved, that's what we do when we refuse the gospel. God says, come party, come rejoice. I've sent the Savior, and you may be clothed in his righteousness, and you may live the, the life that he lived in, in, in me and in him through faith, but you won't come to the party because you're proud and self-righteous, and you think you're good enough. But oh, the grace of God displayed in his Father. He doesn't rebuke him. He effectively preaches the gospel to him again. 
Notice what he says in verse 31. He said to him, son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. In other words, I have enough to give to all. All that I have, God says to his children, is yours. If you would but repent and come enjoy it. <laughs> and sinners coming to me, <laughs> it's fitting that I rejoice at their coming. What this man has to understand is that there's actually more in the repenting than in the self-righteousness. More offered to him by his father. And maybe some of us are like this older brother. Raised in the church perhaps. Been a Christian a long time so we think. And maybe we have thought that what it means to be a Christian is to obey God. Well not perfectly because who's perfect we say right? But to obey God like I do. Obey the commands that I, that I obey. I'm generally good before God. And maybe we think God owes us then his heaven. Oh, beloved, that is the worst of sins. It is pride. And God opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. Here in this last story, we, we're helped to see that we actually have to repent of our righteousness too. Of ever trusting our righteousness. Of ever trusting in our good deeds. Of ever thinking that we are good enough. So whether we are the sinner and the tax collector or the Pharisee of verse 2, we have this common need to repent and come to God to confess either our squalor in sin or to confess our superiority in self-righteousness, both, both of which are odious in the nostrils of God. There's never been a human being to live apart from Jesus Christ who did not need to repent. And there's never perhaps been a more beautiful passage from God encouraging us in our repentance. For if we come to him, he will be a father to us. If we come to him, we'll be clothed in our right mind, seeing sin for what it is. If we come to him, the destructive effects of sin will be halted, and he will begin to renew us by his spirit. If we come to him, all of heaven will rejoice, and we will too. Beloved, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, there's nothing more vital than that you should understand this word repentance. It's a fancy word that means turning around. It tells us that we, all of us, have been going our own way in sin. And if we continue, it would end in our judgment and damnation in an eternal hell. But we can avoid that cliff by making a U-turn, by turning away from our sin and turning to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who died to pay the penalty for our sins, but was raised from the grave, that we might be right with God, and that we might have eternal life and victory over death, and that we might be able to come to God and receive him again as our Father, just as this story illustrates. The Bible says, all who confess faith in Christ, repenting of their sins, are born again, live forever in the grace and love of God, and will sit with him in his kingdom forevermore, enjoying the fatted calf in glory. Don't be a Pharisee and overlook that. Be a sinner and repent. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this picture of your gospel. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would help each of us to 
turn to you more fully. Some perhaps for the first time to receive eternal life and to receive Christ as Lord. Some perhaps for the the unnumbered time. For Lord, you have called us to a life of repentance. And we keep turning to you, our North Star, to receive again your forgiveness, your grace, and your love. Father, we pray, grant us this grace by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Had no ears to hear your voice, did not know your love within, had no taste for heaven's joys. Then your spirit gave me life. Open up your word to me through the gospel of your son, gave me endless hope and peace. Today, if you hear God's voice, if his spirit is speaking to you, won't you listen? Won't you respond? Won't you repent? Let's.